This is the Lifestyle as Medicine podcast, and I am Mike Riccio, longtime personal trainer, professional strength coach, gym owner, and most importantly, a devoted modern father and husband. I've been fortunate to learn under some of the most intelligent minds in health and fitness over the past 15 years, as well as work with amazing clients and athletes. What I've most fallen in love with over the years is the power we have over our lives, the power to decrease risk of disease and injury, the power to reach our true potential, the deep abilities the body is capable of when all aspects of health are working simultaneously. On this podcast, you will learn the importance of preventative health and how to optimize your habits to optimize your life. Today, you get to hear from David Harris, who is the former vice president of health and human performance at Equinox Luxury Fitness Clubs. He's currently doing some great work and really cool projects with uh, Simon Sinek. And I had the opportunity to work from afar with David when I was an employee of Equinox. And this episode is a special one for me because I get to discuss with David some of the things that I admired about him, the projects that he started, the programs that he was the architect for at Equinox. And we get into that, we get into some great things about genetics and genetic testings and what it means for our life. We get into his personal history and family and what motivated him to get into training and then climb the corporate ladder into being an executive with such a major company. And we get into the idea of how to form a naturally occurring recovery process into your year. So how do you force yourself to sit back and de-stress and actually take time away from a busy life. It's a great episode. It was a great sit down and uh, I know you're going to enjoy it. So without further ado, here is David Harris. Okay, this is the Lifestyle as Medicine podcast and I am on with David Harris. Today is a, it's a special episode for me because I've had firsthand experience with, with David. I'm a former Equinox employee, and we'll get into my role there and and how David has impacted it. But he's the former uh, VP of Health and Human Performance. He's now doing some amazing things with Simon Sinek, which if you haven't seen Simon's uh, TED Talk, uh, Start With Why, that's that's a good place to start uh, in understanding what what Simon's all about. But uh, I've been really excited for this episode all week. And David, I really appreciate you being on. Well, Mike, it's great to be here. And uh... This is an exciting time, despite it being a very challenging time. Um, it's an exciting time. Before we started, we went through kind of you know, where where you came through as a professional from a one-on-one coach through your role with Equinox. Do you want to talk uh, quickly a little bit about your, your personal history in fitness and how you got to where you are today? Sure. I mean, I was an athlete when I was in um, high school and college. I, I did a lot of recreational track and field. And then I, as I got a little bit older, um, I started running marathons before that was really fashionable, uh, back in the eighties, uh, seventies was when it really started coming on, but I came on in the eighties and started doing that. And what really got me into fitness, I had always been interested in it. And I had studied some health sciences when I was in college, but I was in no way you know, had a degree in exercise science and things like that because it really didn't exist at that time. You know, I think part of the things we have to realize is that this is such a new world that we're in. Um, exercise science came a little bit later. And so um, studying health science was like a like a big part of it. And uh, um, so I had some foundational awareness around that. But it was really my uh, experience being a long-distance runner that that initially started me into thinking about the coaching aspect and uh, the fact that I needed to train more specifically for performance uh, in doing long-distance running is what got me into the gym and sort of thinking more about that. And uh, so, you know, I did five marathons in the course of my running career, um, and it was a very exciting and humbling time. Um, uh, But I remember the thrill of those endorphins that you only get from running. You know, there's something about your body in motion moving forward that I think is very uh, unique to us as animals. And uh, it's, 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 it's totally, you know, it just feels right. 
And so, but if you're going to be, you know, getting into high performance around that, obviously there's a lot more considerations. And so that's what really got me into the gym world. And then, um, uh, I had another career at the time I was, I, my, uh, undergraduate and master's degree were in filmmaking. Um, and so I worked in the film industry for a good decade, uh, in a variety of positions doing location scouting and doing, um, doing editorial and doing, you know, all kinds of things that are related to that field. And I found it a very negative atmosphere at the time in those days. There wasn't as much freedom as there is now because there wasn't, there isn't this, there wasn't the democracy that there is now in terms of how movies are produced. Um, And so I found it a little bit oppressive and really going to the gym became my sanity. It was sort of how I was able to maintain the right attitude through that early career and sort of get to a place um, that led me into fitness as a career. Uh, so after my stint in running, I trained a decade. I got really into, you know, very, you know, doing a lot of heavy weightlifting, strength training, um, became a com- competitive bodybuilder that stretched me into the 90s. Um, I took that as far as I could go. I became a natural pro with the WNBF. Um And I enjoyed, you know, the thing about that was that there was an artistic aspect to sort of sculpting the body, which I found fascinating. But there was the the thing that really got me was the nutritional aspect, how you could manipulate your body chemistry to get it to look a certain way. Um, I was much more fascinated by that than I was the end result, which I knew from a competitive standpoint was important. I was just fascinated by that chemical aspect. Uh, and being able to manipulate and take my genes as far as they would go. Um, and then there just came a natural endpoint where, you know, I started studying. I said, I'm going to get into this. And I, I took the ACSM certification. I took the, uh, I took the NASM certification. I took ACE. I did all those certifications, right, because I was really fascinated. And I started doing some freelance training on my own. With clients, and then and then there came a point where I said, you know, I I, I don't want to just be a guy going to an average gym doing this. Uh, if I'm going to do this, I need to do this seriously, and I needed to go to a place that had credibility. And so um, I wound up getting employed at the original Equinox uh, at 76th Street in Amsterdam. I was hired by the Erico family, who were the founders of the company. And um, I remember meeting them when they were in pre-sale and, you know, before the original club even opened. And there was something that they were creating that was very unique. And uh, I went away from it for a couple of years. And then uh, I I came back to them when I realized they had this fitness institute. And I said, if I'm going to go to a place and be a professional, I need to align myself with a company that puts education at the center of what they do and puts learning at the center of what they do so that I can continue to improve. So that's what really got me into Equinox. And I think since then it's gotten thousands of trainers into Equinox um, to uh, take that journey to bettering their knowledge around what they're doing and how that applies to their clients. And then uh, once I was in that stream as a trainer, I management from management, I became a director from a director, I became a VP and, you know, I didn't get into this thinking I was going to be some heavy duty executive. That wasn't my goal. My goal was to follow an interest to its end, to its logical conclusion. And for me, it was an intellectual journey. It was a spiritual journey. It was a, it was a journey that sort of became this big company. Um, I didn't really care about titles per se. I, I was more fascinated by the responsibilities and the duties and sort of where this could all go. And so um, that's what really kept me on track for 25 years with the company. And I'm very proud of what I was able to add there in terms of value and really creating what I felt was a, was a great learning environment for people to become the best that they could be in this. Uh, well, you know, and I, I, I can confirm that, you know, I was, I'm a little bit of a special case too, because I came into Equinox in 2010 and I absolutely loved it. And then I left I left as soon as I came because I chased the money of a management position at another competitor. The, the moment I left, I realized what I was missing. So the, the institute, the educational model, I found out fast that Equinox was unique. And, and today isn't about necessarily the, the company, but, but it's a testament to why, why I have you on today because 
you helped to build what became so important to me. I came back and I went on to teach at that institute. I ended up becoming an instructor in the Chicago region. uh, And it gave me my, it gave me my passion for teaching. You know, I, I think, I think Equinox a lot uh, for a lot. And I guess the segue to the first question is, you know, we as trainers saw from afar what you were trying to do. So between 2010 and when I left uh, just a few years ago, you know, 2017, uh, we, we saw what you were building. We saw the T-Rex program coming. And then I got to be a part of one of those first T-Rex programs, which was especially in Chicago. Um, can, can you talk about what was what was really important for you to make sure the trainers knew? What educational system did you did you think was missing? Did you think, man, I if we're going to help more people, if we're going to help more of the general adult population, here's what trainers need to have at their disposal. Um, well, yeah, I, I you know as, as part of my passion for elevating things generally, this was this was another area that I felt very passionate about and. You know, uh, up to this point, the tier system only consisted of three tiers, you know, and it was as much an economic model as it was a, uh, a trend because with the progression came pricing, right? And so you're always trying to add value back into the experience. But as a business person, you're constantly trying to uptick your service so that you can market yourself and, and become more successful on the financial side. So that was that part for the company. But um, for me, I realized very early on that trainers get bored easily. And um, it's very easy to fall into a rut of, you know, initially when you're learning, it's, it's great because all the, you know, doors are flying open and you're learning all this stuff. And then there comes the gritty reality of training clients day in and day out, which is very different. It's getting up at all these odd hours in the morning and traveling and going in and eating food out of plastic dishes and, you know, uh, maybe getting a break every five hours if you're lucky to shove something in your mouth and then trying to squeeze in your workouts. (laughs) And it becomes a real um, exercise in, in the management of your own lifestyle, which for a lot of trainers tends to fall by the wayside because they're giving so much out to their clients. And, um, so, you know, that's a, that's a very difficult challenge that, you know, I think so many find themselves in. And so uh, it, it tends to wear down inspiration. Um, and it's not enough to say we're going to, you know, five bucks, bucks more on a bonus or, or we're going to give you more of this or more of that. I never felt like, yes, money is what trainers are seeking. And, and a lot of times people go off on their own because they realize that they can keep the lion's share for themselves. And then they run into like tax obligations and all these other things that are very, you know, insurance and all these things they kind of take for granted, which when they run their own business, then they realize it's a much bigger thing. But um, if you're working for a company at any size, it you can tend to fall into that rut and become uninspired. And I like to think that if I could keep the staff inspired, they would keep the members inspired. It, my ultimate client was the trainer. It was not the member. Um, we, we talked a lot about being member centric. I wanted to be employee centric in terms of the intellectual capacity that I was able to deliver to them and the challenge of becoming better. Cause I knew if they became better, their clients would, would, would feel that way. Uh, you know, and, and to me, that always made sense. If I can make 100 trainers better, I get to touch all the clients, those 100 trainers. Right. Interact with every single day. You know, I, I sat in a room with an oncologist once at a, at a seminar I was speaking at, but he came, he came out after me and, you know, he had a speech about how the fitness expert may, and his, and he said is, I'll say may, may be the most crucial component to health of any individual because we get the most interaction with somebody. Doctors tend to see people when they're symptomatic. You know, we, we tend to wait till things are symptomatic before they become an issue where we have an opportunity to look at some of these preventative models and health models on top of what whatever the goal is that our trainer comes to us with, right? It's, and it's usually a weight loss-centric thing, whether it's toning or weight loss, whatever you want to call it. There's, there's typically something else there. Um, and the, 
the tier, well, tier X, it was tier four when I started. It was before the X came on. The tier four program was the first time in my career, and at the time I was already a decade in, where I really was taught to look at things deeper, to look at, well, where is sleep and where is nutrition? And I was always asking those questions, but not in the way I should have and not as an equal opportunity to the workouts I was putting people through, Um, which is, I mean, which now domino affecting down is the reason I'm sitting here with this podcast, right? There's a reason this is so important to me to get this message out. So in a lot of ways, I can turn around now and credit this to you because it was that model that made this lifestyle so important. Um, you know, there's, I don't know the, the exact question in there, but I more just want to credit you because I really do owe a lot of what I'm doing today to, to the model that you built at Equinox. Um, so first, it's kind of a, a thank you to you. And I guess I want you to know how, how impactful the programs have been to trainers. And it's not just me. It's other trainers that I know who are either still with the program, who have left, who have done that. Um, so thank you. Well, thank you for saying that. And I'm very humbled because I felt like um, I wanted people to be better than I was. That was a large impetus for me. You know, I felt like I was a good coach. I felt like there were a lot of things that I lacked. You know, I didn't think I was the most patient person um, (laughs) because I was so intellectually (laughs) curious about things. and I move at a mile a minute that it was sort of like, um, you know, the act of patience was not my greatest suit. And so I wanted, you know, like parents give to their kids, you want to give them the things that you don't have. You want to give the the framework for becoming something better than I was. And, you know, I think I have very deep parental instincts, as I've discovered later in life. I never thought of that when I was coming along in my career, but I tried to drive those energies toward the staff that worked there. And I felt I was in a unique position to bequeath to them something that, um, that, that didn't exist you know, um, in any other company. And thankfully the company provided the framework for that. So I, I was very grateful for the ability for, uh, some of my colleagues to continue to see that value during the time I was there. Well, and I can tell you it's a domino effect because I, I know me, I know other and others have gone off now and started our own companies and done our own things where we are taking that mindset and we're sharing it. So it's, it's spreading, Thanks to someone who thankfully built up to that executive level as a trainer mindset person, not solely a, an executive and business person mindset. I, I'd like to get into some of the things that really got you, that really got you into the mindset you did. So some of the things we talked about were one, uh, one was athletics, right? You, you looked at athletics and you looked at the way people moved and that inspired some of your thought process into what you wanted the the programs to become. Do you want to talk on that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think trainers are very, uh, we're very primitive people. We, we understand things bodily first. I think that's why the idea of application in the learning process is so important for trainers because we're very tactile and we, we go on our senses, our feelings, and our ability to evaluate those um, and gauge those against our aspirations. Um, and I know I'm very much that way. And I just felt intuitively that everyone else was too. Um, and so I think, um, you know, I think, you know, going through the different stages of my own athletic background, as I did, it was very telling and it's great because it paired aging process too. There were certain times where I realized I couldn't do certain things anymore and that was okay. Uh, because one door closes, another one opens. Like the idea of putting 315 pounds on my back, uh, you know, there just came a point after 40 where that was diminishing returns on my lumbar spine. You know, I just didn't need that axial compression anymore. It was causing more problems than it was helping me. And so, you know, as I began to change in the process of my own fitness um, um, and my aspirations and my goals became different, it widened the lens uh, on what I felt our chief consumer wanted because I was in the sweet spot of the aging of our consumer. And I say this all the time, you know, when I started at Equinox, the trainers and the members were the same age. Um, and I, I'll, I'll never forget going there. You know, we were all in our like early to mid thirties and, you know, all the members wanted to be the trainers. Like they wanted to be us. They aspired to be what we were as physical specimens. As people were 
who were passionate about this. And they were working these rather stressful corporate jobs that they didn't really enjoy. And the, and the gym, much like it was for me when I went over, became a, a place where they could regain their sanity. So the, those people were an inspiration to them. Flash forward, you know, 25, 30 years later, and you've got this now this huge age gap between people who are, you know, uh, middle-aged headed or heading toward retirement um, and still have physical capability, but their goals have changed. They have to think differently about what they're doing. Now working with a much younger person, um, you know, a person that's averaging in their 20s that doesn't necessarily have that um, uh, perspective. And so what that creates for the owner-operator is a challenge in closing the gap between those two worlds. And it's really a social construct that if it is not met, uh, it, it, it doesn't stick. Uh, because ultimately, um, that's why I, I wanted to beef up the educational aspect, because I knew that that was coming down the road. You know, it couldn't, it, it, it had to be more than a buddy system. It had to be more than inspiration. Um, you had to give people real tools to help people who were very different from them to succeed. Sure. Uh, and- yeah, and, and I love it. And you're right, these, this relationship with, and especially at Equinox, where the, the clientele was a high-end clientele. It was a very educated clientele, but there was still a disconnect with general health. There was still, and you know, there was still this, and we were going to talk about this in a different way, but maybe now is a better opportunity. There was this badge of honor type thing that we really had to get through with our clients. There was a we are, we are top-end executives. We are the lawyers. They were the doctors. And sleep was tough. Um, Under-eating was tough, right? It was this, we've worked so hard to get to where we are, so all they knew was overworking. It was the first time where I really had to think about taking people down a notch versus getting everyone to work harder, mm-hmm. um, which is the opposite sometimes of what we look at. So if you think about recovery, Right. Yeah. Reco- recovery is such a crucial aspect in fitness that is, I think, just now really starting to bridge the gap of being more universally accepted. Would you say that's true? Yes, I do think it is because, um, you know, the younger person doesn't think about recovery as much, even though it's important to them, too. It becomes much more critical as one gets older and as one has different environmental stressors than they had when they were younger. So, when, you know, more obligations and responsibilities you have, the more difficulties you run into, you know, in, in, in order to just manage your own homeostasis, your own ability to just keep yourself in check becomes more of a challenge. And I think, um, that's what started to happen. Um, and so, uh, this gradually migrated more to a lifestyle, uh, model. And you mentioned earlier about, you know, the doctors saying, saying this to you, that we have more influence. And in fact, we do, because we know that disease is always an encounter between environment, genetics, and lifestyle choices. Um, these things don't happen out of the blue. They happen because of a congruence of factors that come together to create disease. And so um, there are some people who think that, yeah, yeah, it's obvious. We're not doctors. What we are are agents of change that help people uh, manage precipitatory behaviors that lead to disease. It's a very, very different construct, with a very different type of responsibility. And so your responsibilities are now to educate, to inform, to guide, to mentor, to coach. You know, it's all of these different things that come together uh, in that world that require a vastly, uh, or a, 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 how shall I say, a much wider skill set than the average one-on-one trainer might have. It, it does, because it's a hard sell, right? To say, hey, you're not symptomatic, you don't have this yet, but here are some red flags. The way you're eating, the way you're sleeping, these may or may not become issues down the line, and we should probably start working on them now. Yep. It, it hasn't... It's not easy for that alone to be, that's not a motivating factor. That's the way to put it, I guess. You know, just saying that alone, unfortunately, is not a motivating factor until, and a phrase I've been using a lot lately, until we get punched in the face with right. with either a personal symptom or something close to home, right? A family member, a friend, uh, a coworker, someone where you're like, oh, 
this was someone who I would have seen as healthy and now they're running into this issue. Uh, uh, or maybe I didn't see him as healthy. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's very hard to motivate something uh, or to motivate someone with something that might happen. Right. Yes, right. You want to motivate them by the situation they're in. You have to meet people where they are. Um, and unfortunately in the fitness industry, so much of it has been driven by vanity. Right. Right. It's how you look. It's this tie-in with our sexuality and with our sense of attractiveness and all of these things that people think that fitness will give them, right? And those are those are primary when one is young because people are dating and there, you know there's, there's the whole kind of animal construct that happens when you're younger. Right. That when you're when you reach middle age or older, very different type of priorities uh, that begin to emerge. But the industry has has always catered to this very young mindset, mm -hmm. uh, both to remain contemporary with the times, but interestingly enough, that is not congruent with the people who have the most money to spend. Right. People who have the most money to spend are middle-aged and older people who want to extend their lives. And that consumer has tremendous discretionary income and so uh, that has been, I think, something that a lot of business people have overlooked in this pursuit of youth. And uh, now that we're in the middle of a crisis, I think uh, the chickens are coming home to roost on that point of view. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's, it, it's been a flip, right? Because it was, well, you're going to come in for an aesthetic goal and then as you work on that, you'll also maybe, you know, lower risk of disease and maybe that stuff will happen as a byproduct. Right. And, and now you're seeing the flip. It's, hey, I want to come in because I am not healthy. And then, hey, if you do this, 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 and this, you'll probably also put on some good muscle and you'll, and you'll utilize body fat better and you'll see some tone. Yeah. And it's, for me, it's been a very refreshing flip of mindset to have people come in and really, really talk about health first and aesthetic second. And that's not to take away what, whatever motivates someone to be healthier, I want them to use. Right. And that's, I had a really good conversation with another interviewer and that was it. It's, you know, the question was, how do we motivate people with before, before they've been punched in the face and it's, you gotta find, you gotta find something they enjoy. So if, if, if gaining strength or losing fat or, uh, or running a marathon, if that's going to be the motivator, use it, come on in, come to the gym, do it, train for it. Uh, my job now becomes making sure that we also work in these conversations sooner and start providing the links. And that's what the proper education has done. It's given us a bridge to say, decreasing risk of disease and dementia and Alzheimer's and, and all this, and getting bigger, stronger, faster are not are not distant relatives. They're actually closely related. Yes, you know, and, yeah. and and in our conversations, we've come into we came into the genetic conversation. Mm -hmm. So you brought up how your family inspired you, um, almost from a from a non health standpoint, to really take a deeper dive into health and to genetics. And I'd love to get into that portion now of the genetic component and where it became important to you and where you've taken it. Okay. Uh, well, I, I got, in, I got fascinated by the genetic aspect probably around 2008 or nine uh, when I started to put together the Equinox health advisory board. And I was really thinking about all of the subject matter that would lend itself to uh, giving trainers more tools to help them manage uh, their clients. One of the gentlemen I put on the board was a person who was an expert in genetics. And so I had some early genetic testing done then. Um, I, since then, I've had about four or five different uh, genetic tests. Uh, the good news on those genetic tests is that they've all been very consistent in what they've revealed. Um, so no surprises there. I sort of, my, 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 my last test was with a company called Illumina, which probably has the gold standard of testing. Uh, both because it reveals not just um, genetic history uh, in in a sort of neatly packaged way that, let's say, a, a 23andMe does. It, it goes very deeply into, into specific pathways. 
And then it takes a pharmacological view so that you have a sense of, uh, you know, what medications may be problematic for you, given your genetic makeup. Uh, it, it tells you a lot about your point of origin genetically, uh, you know, in terms of, of where you come from. And if you're predisposed to any, if there's a higher risk of your uh, gene pool encountering environmental uh, and lifestyle things that could be problematic for you. Because you you show that you have a higher risk factor for something does not mean that you will get it. Conversely, because you have no risk factors does not mean that you will not get sick. It, and, you know, again, it's about the encounter between predisposition, environment, and genetics. And so a lot of people were, were very, you know, afraid of genetic testing because they didn't really understand what I just explained. And I think it's very important for, for, for that to be fully realized and fully understood. As to my own family, you know, I, fortunately, I, you know, I, I, I've seen a, a very interesting pattern in my family. I have, on the one hand, extreme longevity, uh, kind of on both ends. Uh, I have, uh, on my mother's side, most of the women in that family have lived well into their 90s and over 100. So we have a number of centenarians who've gone through. And uh, on my father's side, there has also been good longevity with some of the women li living a long time, some not. Uh, men tending to have shorter lives on that side of the family. Um, and there have been specific reasons for that, but also some living longer. Um, and so when I had the genetic test done, I was, I, you know, I wanted to understand where I was from and not just from a scientific point of view. I wanted to sort of understand my automatic affinity for certain, certain cultures, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and I wanted to sort of understand, you know, is there anything baked into me that sort of makes me gravitate or feel spiritually connected to certain places? So when I had my uh, genetic test with Illumina, it showed that, you know, I was like 58% from the African diaspora. So from the African continent and from different places. So West Africa, Central Africa, East Africa, South Africa, different points on that map. Um, and then I was something like 40% European. So I had uh, a good deal from France, Ireland, um, England, uh, Western Europe in general, and then Finland. And knowing my mother's side of the family and where uh, my grandmother uh, and my great grandfather grew up, um, that was, you know, they grew up in the Minnesota area. So that was a Finnish settlement. That was a, a, a Scandinavian part of the United States. So it, it sort of, that tie-in made sense. And then I knew I had a, I had a French great-great-grandmother and I had, you know, all of these elements that sort of mixed in. And then I found out I had a certain percentage, I had a certain percentage from um, Asia, Asia, Siberia which was interesting, and then into Asia, and then I had also the Arabian Peninsula. So I had this very interesting mix of genes, of, of influences on my genetic uh, uh, composition. And what all of that ultimately resulted in, because I was fascinated to understand, did this put me at risk for anything? And what I found out was that because of all the gene mixing, because they went back 500,000 years on my mother's side, 300,000 years on my father's side. So I saw all this great spread. And what it amounted to was that I had no prominent risk for anything because of the mixing, because it canceled out the risk factors in other areas. There was a balance in that genetic profile which showed that I carried no overriding risk factor for anything, which I thought on the one hand was good, good news, but I have to realize that I'm living in a very contemporary environment with a lot of different stimuluses, and that does not mean that I will not get sick. My, my brother died of pancreatic cancer at 64. We still don't understand what causes that. He had a composition in genes somewhat different from mine, and that's the other thing. Your brothers and sisters may not have the same mix you do, um, so a lot that we don't really understand that, well, that's fascinating alone that your siblings, you would think you came from the same, assuming you came from the same parents, you would think you'd, you'd have almost identical markers, but you're saying that you wouldn't. 
Or you wouldn't well, necessarily. Um, some, uh, you know, I had higher percentages of some. He had higher percentages of some. You know, uh, the the ingredients don't always mix in the bowl the same way. So there is this process, which is why we all look different, right? We look like we're related, but we're actually very unique and different. And that's a result of sort of how the genes are, are, are spread. So would you, and I realize that this isn't necessarily like your, your main area of expertise, but as someone that's educated themselves on it, and I know you're a good self-educator. So if you, if you have less of a mix, if you're more of a I don't know what the term for it, but if you're if you find out you're really from just one region, would you right. say that that tends to lead to more a of a genetic predisposition to that region's well, diseases? Yeah, I mean, I think the evidence is out there that there are certain diseases that are are prominent among certain groups of people. Like Ashkenazi Jews definitely have a higher risk factor around breast cancer, for example. Um, and we know because of the way those cultures are set up, uh, the tendency for inbreeding is a lot greater, right? Anytime you get into a situation where people are very protective of their culture and their environment, uh, and people marry within their group, chances of, of there being, uh, you know, everybody kind of being the same, um, there are going to be elevated risk factors because the mixes are not present to cancel out some of the other risk factors. So it, it's kind of what we see in animals, right? I, I have a dog that is, uh, uh, he's a hundred percent Fox red Labrador. Now la Fox red Labradors, uh, there are two things that they are predisposed to. One is something called exercise induced collapse. And they have a, they, they have a built-in arrhythmia, which happens if there's too much inbreeding and um, what happens is if they exercise too intensely, they just fall down and they have to stop. They cannot move for like five or 10 minutes. Um, and then they get up and they move again, right? Uh, but that's a result of the inbreeding. Another thing that they get is retinal dysplasia. So I have a dog that is a carrier for retinal dysplasia, but because people are breeding them in a certain way, they wanted to take him out of the mix so that he would not pass that gene. Um, and so he was taken out and I'm, I'm the beneficiary of his presence because of that. Uh, otherwise he'd be on a farm and he'd be a sex slave. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've, I've seen the picture that he's a, he's a, he's a beautiful pup, uh, yep. to go along with your new beautiful environment. Also, and this, uh, this is fascinating. And I, I guess I, you know, so you, and you bring up the, the really big point of, even though you came back with what would be a very uplifting and positive result. Mm -hmm. You still can't sit back and assume that disease isn't coming. You stand, you can't say, Hey, I, now I can sit on my genetics. I can go eat fast food and I can live a, a carefree, unhealthy lifestyle because I'm sitting on gold. Right. So, yeah. So even though you got this positive result, so what, what keeps you, what keeps you motivated to still live? I know you're a healthy guy. I see it. I see how you talk. Um, I know you from experience. What keeps you motivated to still keep your health at such a forefront of your, of your daily habits? Well, I think, you know, part of it was, um, and I saw in your outline that we discussed, you know, challenges that one has in life. Um, and everyone has periods of extreme challenge and, um, what drove me to go and get, you know, I got some of that executive testing where you go in and, you know, they do a battery of tests on you and they look at everything, brain function, heart function, uh, you know, analyze your blood. They, they do, you know, uh, MRIs on every organ in your body. Um, and this is a place called the Center for Longevity, which is in uh, La Jolla. And I went and I had this test done in 2017. Uh, because there was some interest in perhaps doing some business at the time. And uh, so I was invited in to go through this executive physical, which I went through. It was like six hours of intensive testing and genetic testing and brain scanning and all of this stuff. And by the time I'd gotten to 2017, I had, you know, I came out of a very rough period of very high stress, not only at work, but personally. I had a severe loss in my life of my partner and I had a, a lot of major stress uh, that I, I, I knew had taken a great psychological toll. Um, 
And I was curious if there had been, if there was going to be a physical toll in that. And so I went into it very open and I was told when I went through, you know, everyone who is 50 plus, there's a 50% chance we're going to find something in you that's silently ticking away that hasn't been revealed. So that's why we take you through all of this. And people go through it like brave people go through this who really want to know. Some people, I'm astonished by people who don't want to know because uh, I think there's this, just this fear of death that everyone has. And um, uh, so people choose not to know because they don't want the stress of the anxiety around that issue. But I went in anyway because I felt like I had already lived through a very dark period and I really didn't care at that point. I, I wanted to know. So I went through the testing and it involved uh, getting a full brain scan. It involved uh, extensive testing of my heart. Um, it involved uh, an MRI of every organ in my body. I had to lay in the, you know, the big chamber and get all these snapshots taken of every organ. Extensive blood work, uh, genetic paneling, um, cognitive uh, evaluations, you know, all kinds of stuff. And I came out of it after six hours and I, you know, there's time for me to have the review. And uh, so I went into the room and I was, you know, fully expecting and he said, there's, there's absolutely nothing wrong with you. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> okay. And he showed me my brain on the scan and he said, you still have 98% of your brain capacity. Um, and at that point I was nearing the age of 60 and it was like, it was like, okay. He said, that's really, really good. And I was like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad of that. Um, and, you know, I saw my organs and I saw little things that were going on, but there was nothing pronounced. And uh, to me, it was like a responsibility to continue to not take that for granted. Mm-hmm. Um, I have always felt that I had a mission that I had to fulfill. And uh, I, I, I still feel that that way. And so... I feel like some of this is divine intervention and, you know, I'll be here for as long as I'm here, but, but I felt it has fed my passion around wanting to continue living in a way that is productive and conducive to being healthy, mainly for my output for other people. Well, and and maybe this is purely opinionated, but how much did your lifestyle lead to that 98% of cognitive ability still being available? You know, and I, and I don't know if there's an answer for that, but or what was, I mean, or was it? Yeah. yeah, I mean, some of it is, I think, genetic. I mean, I know, you know, my mother is 92 and she does crossword puzzles every day and she's as sharp as a tack and her memory is good. And her mother was the same way. And her great aunt lived to 104 and was very, you know, cognitively. Um, so I know I have some good potential there around that. My grandfather's lived in, into their eighties. So, you know, there, there's this stuff that, that I know is just kind of there, but yeah, I would say the lifestyle choices that I've made up to this point have definitely benefited me. And, And there's an old saying that, you know, your genetics take you up to about 60. And then after that lifestyle is everything. And so you really have to be very cognizant as you get to that uh, next stage of life that you're making the right choices. And, and for me, it meant getting out of big cities. You know, I, I just felt like that just wasn't my jam anymore. Um, being in that, being in that environment, it was great while I was there. Uh, um, you know, it led to a lot of career success, but I didn't feel like that environment was conducive to this next evolution of the person I wanted to become. So leaving that environment was super important. Uh, yeah, and, yeah, and I, I got to believe, and this is a question for somebody at some point, I got to believe that the lifestyle at least played a role, right? You know, I, I come from a family where dementia is prevalent. My father passed of a brain tumor that I, I as, you know, without any proof, am pretty well believing that it was lifestyle-based. Um, you know, he didn't sleep. He worked four jobs growing up to make sure he supported us. You know, he uh, had a very high stress career and just, and was also a naturally high stress person. It wasn't just the career, you know, it was just his makeup. So like you, um, different, of course, different trauma, of course, and I don't want to compare, 
But like you, it took the loss of someone for me to say, well, I better dig in. I better dig in and see. And back to the badge of honor, I, 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 I did a lot of sessions with Equinox and I did it by waking up early and working late and sleeping minimally. And, you know, there's a little bit of hypocrisy in, in some of my message because I spent a lot of years believing I was healthy, but really sabotaging the later years um, if I didn't make a change. And, and I hope I'm making those changes. I hope they have an effect. I guess we'll find out. Um, yeah. You know, but I guess the, the, the point is, you know, I, it's, it's so hard to, even with the genetics, right? It's so hard to really say exactly what ratio your lifestyle played versus your genetics and where, where are they married? Right? Right. Where, where do they really become a connection point? Um, but I love how you bring up, you know, how it, it, it motivated you the right way, how you felt like you had this responsibility to keep it going. Um, because you were, were blessed to be on that, the good side of the 50%, right? Because you, I'm guessing you went through that interview and fully expected to be on the bad side of 50%. If someone tells me I have a 50% chance of finding out something negative, I'm just waiting for what version of negative I'm getting. Is that right? Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I um, you know, it is said that the three most stressful things that happen in one's life is the death of a loved one, uh, the change of career or loss of a job, whatever, and moving. And I realized within a 10-year span, I did all three. And so it was an extraordinary decade for me in terms of fortitude and change and sort of moving toward a new stage, which when you move toward a new stage, you don't know you're moving toward it. Um, you, just, you just know that things are changing in you that can no longer be. And that was the case for me over the last 10 years. I just now have the perspective to see that. I didn't as I was going through it. It just felt like going through hell the whole time. And, uh, you know, there are words of encouragement out there that tell people to look on the brighter side. The light is at the end of the tunnel, all of these things. And sometimes it's really hard, but you just have to keep moving. And, you know, if you keep moving and you keep, you keep referencing those things that keep you in check, chances are you will prevail and you'll make it through. Do you feel, I feel a responsibility with my newfound knowledge based on the death of my father. I feel a responsibility to share things. I also am not positive I would be in the same place I am today if he hadn't passed. You know, if that didn't jar me into uh, wanting to dig deeper into brain tumors and dementias and brain health and, and what went into that whether I was an employee of Equinox or not, right? An environment that was teaching me those things, I still don't know for a fact I'd be sitting here with you today on this podcast if that didn't happen. Do you think you would still be with the same knowledge on genetics and have gone through that process if you didn't go through the loss you did? Um, I think as the point of intellectual curiosity, yes. Um, I think as, an, as a person who actually experiences things and understands the nuances and therefore the translatable value of those things to how people live. Um, no, I think their, their experience is still the best teacher. Mm -hmm. And, um, one can read a ton of books, take a ton of courses. There's nothing like life and experiences that teach you, uh, what you need to know and what you don't know. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. I I think the loss is a the loss is a worse loss if if someone can't better from it. You know, I think there's there's a I don't want to say silver lining in my situation. I, I don't want to speak for you, but um, but in my situation, I feel like I, I have to take that somewhere. Um, mm -hmm. So, I guess speaking of taking it somewhere, you know, we we spoke about this idea. Of, you know, in in fitness, we have this this periodization model, right? Where we, we take clients through the ebbs and flows of macro cycles and micro cycles. And it's, you know, you, you do something for a cycle and then you take the body back down you allow it to recover. And then it, when it comes back out of the recovery process, it rebounds better, right? It comes out better than it was beforehand. And in our pre-talk, you very generically brought up the idea of, you know, how much better from a health standpoint we would be in life 
if we had this natural periodization model in life, if we had this opportunity to step away from our career, especially career, but all stress um, and how we could emerge after, um, you know, can you talk on that? Is that something that you've worked into your life? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's interesting. I think that, you know, 2020 has obviously been a very stressful year for everyone. And I like to think that it was an injection of a much needed dose of periodization to the American culture, certainly to the world in, in particular. And, you know, people had to, there was massive disruption in everything that we did, right? And still is. Businesses closed. Things had, you know, all of this downtime and uh, there's naturally a lot of anxiety around that, but there are things that are happening underneath that right now that are going to set the stage for the next hundred years. It's already being set. The table is being set right now. It's like if we were to wind the clock back and look at the beginning of the 20th century, no one had the perspective to see that World War I would be the catalytic event that would set the stage for the next hundred years. And it really did. Everything flowed from that war. Similarly, 9-11 was a catalytic event that has moved us forward into where we are now. If you think about all the global reactions, they're all rooted in that event. Um, And even our responses now to this and our our sort of international relations, highly reactive and reactionary uh, uh, reactions, not cooperative. and 9-11 was hardly a cooperative event, but it, it nudged us toward this idea of cooperation, I like to think. Mm-hmm. And I like to think that we're moving toward this idea of cooperation. And so I think when we don't pay attention to things, life smacks us. And I think that this coronavirus is a huge smack. And the thing that happened was, what happened when the world stopped? The waters cleared up, the air got cleaner, uh, the entire environment got a chance to exhale. And that's something that, and I think everyone also got a chance to got to meet with their families again. They, they, they developed all these things that parents were doing a hundred years ago, schooling their kids at home and spending more time with them and connecting with things that are really important and not going out to eat every night and cooking food and shopping for food and all these very basic things that are about basic sustenance. I like to think that that's the downside of the performance curve because we've been on this high performance kick mm-hmm. where we wanted to like burn bright uh, with a staggering economy and everybody moving ahead and everything's just bright days ahead and more, 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 more. And I think we just got slapped. So to me, it's a good example of the periodization model in action because it's in this downtime that we're recalibrating and it's very stressful sometimes when you recalibrate. It's like after injury, right? You have an injury and, and it's like, two, you know, it's like two steps forward, one step back. Sure. And it seems painfully slow as you're going through any kind of rehabilitation. And I think that's where we are now. The country is in a state of rehabilitation on many, many, many fronts. And that rehabilitation is going to take a long time. Um, and so some people in that curve fall right in the right pocket and are more fortunate than others. Mm -hmm. Some people are not fortunate. And so what that means is the people who have the good fortune should have the capability to help the people who don't. It's a moment for us to help optimize people who need help. It's not about just getting more of what we want. Right. And so I think that's the humanity of the periodization model, right? How can we become better and more helpful, uh, and more of, of more assistance to others. So now, COVID aside, how do we? You know, so we're, we're in the middle of a recovery process, a forced recovery process. And I agree. I think I think you're right. I think this is call it nature, call it the world, call it what you want, forcing us to slow down a bit. Um, albeit with, of course, a lot of loss, and it's terrible, and it's scary, and it's um, and that's upsetting. So going forward, you know, I, I think it's important, as we said in the pre-talk, we have to find a way to force periodization on ourselves. Hmm. How? And I guess it's maybe it's an unfair question, but you know, how how do we in, in a world that demands us to keep moving forward and to where 
our competitors, if you're a business owner, and to your peers, everyone else is continuing moving forward and where you are made to feel bad or you're going to lose out if you take a step back. How do we force periodization and recovery, stress recovery, career recovery into our lives? Well, I think we have to, re- you know, this is all about control, right? We want to control everything and we don't control everything. We, 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 we just don't. The minute we think we control something, we get slapped. Uh, and so the best that we can do is to take our energies and move them forward in a positive direction, um, but not be so harsh and judgmental on ourselves. We have to realize that there are things that are important to our psychological and spiritual sustenance that don't come from working 12, 16-hour days. That's just not sustainable. It's like asking a person, it's like asking a client to, once they reach the top, of, of a periodized program to just stay there and keep banging that same performance out day after day after day. Who, what athlete does that? None. It doesn't exist. And so for us to try to force that model to meet economic expectations, and this is where I really think it gets complicated, that the world economy is a very complex thing because there's a lot of codependencies and there are a lot of stresses that, we, that have now required this massive amount of output to keep the narrative moving forward. I think what we're being asked to do is to reevaluate the narrative. And it isn't about, you know, is it a socialist construct? Is it a capitalist construct? Is it a fascist construct? Is it a human construct? That's the question we need to ask ourselves. Is it human to ask someone to work three jobs simply to feed their family? Is it a human construct to not offer people a way forward to provide for their families? Is it, is, it, is it a human construct to create a situation whereby parents never see their children and they're raised by hired help? Like that is not uh, good. That is not good for us as humans. It is not what civilized societies have done throughout the ages is what advanced societies have done because they have a fidelity to an economy, not to the progress of humanity. And so I think we need to rededicate ourselves to the human function, you know? And yes, we need to eat, we need to pay our bills, we need to do all this, but really how much shit do we need? Do we really need to buy a new iPhone every year? Like, why is that important? You know, and yet it's all these little things to keep buying. You know, I'm glad I had a TV that lasts me, you know, 15 years until I just retired it because I plan to keep the next one if it will last that long. But the idea that you buy a car and you have to trade it in every two, it's ridiculous. And a lot of this has just been about keeping keeping this false narrative going. And uh, we have to reevaluate if that's really important. I, you know, there it is, right? There's, there's exactly we, – we also make choices that also take choices away, right? You know, we, we, you're right. We have to pay the bills and we have to go to work. And, we, and some of us are more unfortunate than others. And that's you – know, we, we have to do what we have to do. But we also make these choices to put a need on things and possessions um, and how we spend our time. There's the power to saying no. Right. There's a power to saying, I don't I don't need to spend my time that way or in that social way and and getting time back somehow. Um, mm-hmm. I, I I love the the Bill Gates quote on, uh, you know, there's the the most important thing we have is time. because It's the only thing that you cannot buy more of. Mm-hmm. Um, so you really have to prioritize it, but it's learning to prioritize it differently. I love the athlete analogy, and it's one I've used a lot over the years because it sticks People can understand this idea of you can't be in season all year long. Right. Right. Football is, is 17 weeks, 21 maybe. And, and that's it because it is so grueling. Right. Baseball is longer because it's not as grueling. It's mentally grueling, but it's less. So this idea of the more grueling your life, the, more, the higher stress your career, the higher stress your situation, the more your body needs – to take a step back and to recover from it. And we have to 
take a moment to take a step back and, and really analyze and say, well, how is my life? Is it stressful? Is it not stressful? How stressful is it? And to analyze our needs. And I think it's a hard thing for people to do on their own, right? Yeah, I, I, look, it's very hard. And that's where I think everybody needs help. Everybody needs coaching. Everybody needs introspection. And if there's no time for introspection and really looking inward and, and evaluating what's really important to you, you're going to make decisions that are purely reactionary and circumstantial. Mm-hmm. And those aren't always to your advantage because you want to make, you want to have the luxury of making a strategic decision, right? That's in the interest of everyone. And I think that is something that has been robbed of the average person because everything is reaction. And that's why you have so many frontline workers who have gotten COVID. Those are people that live reactionary moment to moment because they have to. They don't have the luxury of working from home and doing podcasts like I'm doing right now. They don't have the luxury. They have to get up, get into a situation where there's high risk exposure. And to me, those people are the real heroes because Mm -hmm. they're the ones that are keeping this moving forward for everybody else. And so, um, you know, but to say that, you know, that the person that works an eight hour job then has to get off that job and go work another one. And that that's somehow heroism is ludicrous mm-hmm. and that they're going to die, you know, at 45 because they killed themselves working. Then what is it worth to say that we propped up some phony economy and we, we, we cost a child, their parent, we cost, uh, you know, uh, we cost a husband, their wife or vice versa. I mean, that's, that's not human. That's inhuman. Yeah, and which in turn leaves that family in a worse spot, right? Because now, exactly. now, now we just continue. We continue on the same path because there's another hole that's now pre-dug that 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 family that child cannot dig out of. Um, yeah, um, you're right. So the the spectrum has to end somewhere. Um, David, this is absolutely fascinating. Uh, everything from the genetics to the recovery. Um, what uh, what are you doing now? What are, what can people see from you next? Uh, well, I'm I'm doing a lot of work with Simon Sank right now, and I'm designing different coursework for him um, for that platform. I have a, a new uh, class that is coming out called Difficult Conversations. I did a, a podcast with Simon some some weeks ago. He he began doing these podcasts and. I was very flattered because I still have the highest rating of anybody who's done a podcast with it, simply because of the subject of difficult conversations. And that came out of the events of uh, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor uh, and Ahmaud Arbery and uh, the discussions around race. And um, so, you know, Simon had called me to have a discussion uh, because he wanted to know how to use his platform better to affect change. And we had a what for some might have been a difficult conversation, but for us it was an easy conversation. Um, and so from that, from that podcast, I designed this class that is all about teaching people uh, to be more introspective about where they come from, their point of order, uh, their, their personal experience that shapes their, their point of view, and then the sociological piece, which also shapes their point of view, and how those two overlay and create perceptions that are not always valid or accurate. And um, so I'm very excited to, to roll that out. And then I have some courses that will be coming forward in the fall uh, that I'm designing that are uh, more, more specific uh, on other subjects, but I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. Um, I have a number of other projects that I can't speak to right now that are percolating um, that I'm very excited to get into in the fall. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm working on the second draft of a book that I've uh, been working on for a while now. Um, and so, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very interesting time. Um, and I feel blessed to be able to engage all those things. Well, David, I, I was lucky to have what, I guess I wouldn't call it uncomfortable because um, I enjoyed it, but I'll, I was able to have what other people might call one of those conversations with you. And I've always appreciated it. I love your mindset. I love the way you go about conversations. Um, and I think that what, whatever you come out with, what you just said and elsewhere, I think people should listen. Um, is there a way that people can keep up with you and what you're doing um, besides me promoting you? 
Well, go to simonsenek.com if you're interested in uh, the class that will be coming out uh, called Difficult Conversations. Um, you can follow me on that. Um, I can also be followed on my Instagram, which is JLGTWO. Uh, I'm actually going to be splitting apart my Instagram. I've been involved in a project that I started in February um, that is continuing. It's the, it's the telling the stories of the over 4,000 people who were lynched uh, during the Jim Crow era, uh, and telling these stories in a very personal way. And so I've been telling one story every day. It's what I call the One a Day Initiative. And I dedicated myself initially, I thought I was going to do it for Black History Month until I woke up and I said to myself, it isn't Black History Month, it's American History And so it's just a part of the American story that hasn't been told. So I'm telling one story every day and getting that information out there. And if I do one story every day, uh, it will take me 11 and a half years to tell all 4,000 plus stories. So that's like a side project I have going on and I want to actually take it into a digital museum that gives these people uh, life. So you can follow me there and um, hopefully I'll have some other exciting announcements coming up soon. Well, when you have them, share them with me and I'll, and I'll get them out there. I um, will. And again, your, your perspective on everything is something that everyone needs to hear. Um, and, it, and it only makes sense when you actually see it. Um, but I, it's, been a, it's been a joy to me to know you personally it was a joy for me to know you behind the scenes before I got to know you personally. And, uh, and going through this process for the podcast with you has just been um, amazing. So I want to, again, thank you for taking this time to, to do this with me. This, uh, it meant a lot, and, uh, and this was awesome. Well, thank you for having me, Mike. It was great to, to, to really connect with you because we didn't connect as much when you were an employee and I was an executive. But I feel like I know you a lot better now. So this, is, uh, this has been a great uh, chance for us to get acquainted. Well, hopefully, uh, tip of the iceberg. We'll, we'll continue the process and uh, both on and off of uh, the podcast forum. Awesome. But uh, all right. Well, for now, again, I will. Uh, everything will be in the show notes. So you'll have, you'll have ways to find uh, David and, and contact him and see what he's been doing. And uh, I'll make sure to keep sharing things as we go. Uh, but for today, thank you for listening. Head to the website, lifestyleasmedicinepodcast.com uh, to see this episode uh, on repeat as well as others. And uh, we will see everybody soon. Thank you for listening to the Lifestyle as Medicine podcast. Find more episodes like this at www.lifestyleasmedicinepodcast.com and visit www.marhealthandperformance.com and at marhealthandperformance on both Facebook and Instagram for more great content and information about programs. Have a great day. See you next time.